Welcome to Maidens of Metal and Mayhem, a podcast about all things metal, horror, with a dash of mayhem. Welcome to another episode of Maidens of Metal and Mayhem. This week we want to discuss um, a favorite movie of both MJ and I, the 2015 Guillermo del Toro movie, Crimson Peak. Crimson Peak, um, it's just a, it's an amazing movie. The first thing I want to talk about is um, how it's such a classic gothic horror. Oh, yeah. It's, it's perfect. And say what you want to say about the story. Viewing it, it's the perfect gothic horror visually. I would say even thematically, I mean, it kind of hits like all those typical hallmarks of like a classic gothic horror movie. We have the romance being kind of the center of the stage of the story, being our main focus. We have, you know, the unknowing heroine as our main character, as Edith kind of has to figure out what the hell is even happening to her and around her. You have the house itself. That is a character of its own. Just crimson peak i mean you have ghosts throughout plenty of things that bump in the night and then you also have you know the unknown hero with the doctor and you have what quite a few gothic horror uh uh, movies books uh have in common is often incest and that is the case in this movie as well yeah spoiler alert if you haven't seen this movie from almost 10 years ago there's a little bit of incest, unfortunately. There's, there's a lot of incest. <laughs> Be ready for that. If you Again, if you haven't seen it by now, that's on you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that, that oddly, that's a, it's a very weird, common aspect in gothic horse. I wouldn't say all, but it's definitely, I think, a vein throughout. You know, I don't think it's needed to be a gothic horror, but it's definitely something in there. And I feel like that, like, incest being a constant through some like gothic horror it has to be just because it's such like an existentially horrific thing to think about right it it is that's yes that alone is horrific yeah so i feel like it's more to add to like the in general unsettling atmosphere of a lot of like gothic horror movies books poetry because again it's just that extra thing of being like oh that's really bad And usually I tend to find its critique more on like aristocracy and nobility because there is that history. Yes. I don't know these for facts, but I I definitely got the vibes of the House of Usher. I've never read the book, but uh, I've seen the movie with with Vincent Price. Beautiful movie. Definitely a lot of V.C. Andrews as well, who is also a gothic or a writer. Uh, You know, you got the, the kids trapped up in the attic and they're incestuous oh yeah definitely giving big flowers in the attic vibes yes (laughs) for sure literally to the point where when you are going through the like attic there are flowers painted on the wallpaper in the in the upstairs in the attic yes there are actually uh, I'm glad that you mentioned that because it is it's very flowers in the attic whether I don't know if uh, he took anything from those movies or books, but I wouldn't be surprised. 
even subconsciously, I think there are definitely some points of influence from both of those, just again with like the houses and specifically with the Sharp siblings and how their relationship kind of is. I definitely can see some threads from both of those. Yes. And, uh, you know, visually, uh, I got uh, a lot of Dario Argento, the Italian filmmaker, particularly Suspiria with that lighting, very gothic horror as well. That kind of lighting aspect of the movie, I felt very Suspiria to me. Oh, yeah, definitely the very directional, intense, but also very colorful light. Like the fact that like Edith has a lot of, you know, green and like gold light kind of used around her in more intense scenes and then of course as you know you kind of move into like crimson peak a lot more like red lighting and giving it that more like sickly like yellow color too the costuming in this movie is just amazing you know she's edith is always in a lighter color she's either in a gold or a white uh, you know symbolizing this purest soul and you can definitely tell that they put lucille in darker colors like a dark red or a dark blue and their costumes are like a decade behind as well you notice that it's very noticeable in the movie oh yeah i mean they even mention specifically the fact that what they're wearing is very well handcrafted but a decade old and a decade worn and that's to show exactly when they lost their money and when this whole murderous scheme of the sharp siblings started you know they lost all of their family money from their father gambling it away killed mom and then had no way to keep up their lifestyle. So they started marrying Thomas to any bachelorette he could find with lots of money and obviously didn't make, take him very far if they're already on. I believe Edith is like the sixth. Yeah, she's the sixth. The fifth or sixth. Either they're spending that money quite a bit on his uh, machine or they're not, these victims were not worth a lot. I don't know, but they're going, they go through quite a few of them. Yeah, and it's such a short period of time too. Like that's the wild thing that I always find so interesting with the story is how quickly they go from country to country, city to city, finding these young women, seducing them, getting their money, and then killing them off. These guys are villains. I did want to circle back to Edith's like clothing for a second, because I do really love how throughout the movie she's either dressed in like like white, like stark white clothing, usually at nighttime, and golds or like gold embellished clothing throughout the whole movie and I think it does two kind of purposes like dual purposes symbolically one it kind of again shows like her purity and the fact that she you know is this like pure somewhat innocent soul and especially at nighttime when she's dressed in white I think it gives the appearance that she herself is a ghost because she kind of is um in a way throughout especially the nighttime scenes where she's kind of creeping around the house discovering different things having a lot of her paranormal encounters she's kind of like walking around as a ghost which I always thought was so visually interesting but then again with the gold that she's wearing especially during the daytime I think that really shows the fact that that's all she's worth to the sharps she's only worth the money that she has and the fortune that she's about to inherit and transfer to them and then after that she is not worth it she's just this gilded thing to get to the final means of what they're looking for yeah, I think that's a really good point, um, Sam, that you bring up. You know, I wasn't thinking it that way, but I, I have to agree with you uh, with the symbolism of the colors. 
And then, of course, we have Lucille wearing lots of, like, dark, like, rich colors. And I think part of that is definitely due to the era when her clothes were really fashionable. I believe the movie takes place in, like, the 1890s. So in the 1880s, it was more fashionable to be in the more darker kind of jewel tones. But it also kind of shows her more as, like, that moth type, you know? Like, she's dwells in the dark. She kind of brings darkness with her. Whereas, of course, Edith is, like, her foil. She's airy she's light she's got bright light colors super blonde hair visually i love this movie i just think especially like the color choices are so nice at some point watching the movie i i thought on her blue dress there are they're like these little dangly things to me they look like moth those black moths that were in the attic i mean maybe um which dress or whose dress uh lucille's dark blue dress okay I mean, definitely. I will say one of my favorite, like, Lucille outfits overall, besides her outfit at the very end, like that nightgown, because it's so fluffy (laughs) and the sleeves. (laughs) But I love when they have that, like, fancy dinner towards the beginning of the movie when you really meet Lucille for the first time. And she's wearing that red satin dress and the, like, knotwork on the back that is reminiscent of their mother's ghost later at the, the house. I like I picked up on that so quickly like the first time that I saw this back in the theaters in 2015 and I thought that was such a cool way to kind of foreshadow what the viewer is going to see and eventually you find out about Lucille. That's that's a really good point and I think I think you're right on that because definitely I would say a lot of the costuming was was absolutely in- intentional throughout this movie. Oh yeah, I I feel like most of the visual effects were super intentional and for me I think that's what I love about this movie is yes the storyline is maybe not the most revolutionary not the most transcendent you know it's a pretty basic story a woman falls in love with man her dad gets murdered she gets swept off her feet and then they try to swindle her for all of her money before they kill her it's not trying to reinvent the wheel it's it's just trying to bring something uh, like a love gothic horror story but in his vision yeah and that's what I really like about this movie is I think it is just a it's del Toro's version of a gothic horror love story and there are some things that I really enjoy that I think he did a great twist on for like the classic gothic kind of feeling and vibes I love the fact that he uses the ghost's Yes, it's like a harkinger of the past, like a messenger from the past, but they're not there to scare or harm Edith. They're there to protect her and save her. And I think that's such a smart and interesting twist on the typical ghost story. And unfortunately, they are scary as fuck. These, they, they are not like, I, I would not be like, oh, that's a friendly ghost. Oh, for sure. They're not Casper. (laughs) No, they're, they're not Casper, the friendly ghost. Uh, So... I think that the entire time they were trying to tell her a story, but she was too afraid to see it because, I mean, these ghosts are hideous. I mean, fair. They are. They're creepy. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I also love the fact that and it's a Del Toro film, so this kind of goes without saying, but I love the fact that not every single ghost was CGI. Most of that was practical effects with a little bit of CGI to kind of add in the needed flavor. That's one of the reasons I do really love Del Toro as a director is because he has such a great focus on practical effects 
And I feel like that makes his movies just feel even more real, no matter how fantastical or like whimsical they are. And let's face it, you know, Doug Jones is, you know, his uh, his golden boy, as he should be, um, because he's just fantastic. Oh, I love Doug Jones. If I know Doug Jones is going to be in a movie, I know it's going to be a good one, or at least the creature is going to be awesome because he just he is such a good creature actor. Like the fact that he has like a name that people know as a creature actor, I feel like is such a huge testament to like how talented this man is. I, yeah, I mean, I I would say most times a creature actor doesn't get any credit. Um, so he's he's definitely worked uh, very hard in his career and he deserves the uh, the attention that he gets because he's fantastic. Oh, yeah. Again, if I know Doug Jones is going to be in a Del Toro movie, it's going to slap. It is like he's been in so many of his movies at this point, And the ones that Doug Jones is in are usually some of my favorites. Agreed. Uh, he's he's really, really good. I, I love him for. Um, Hocus Pocus. That's my favorite, but oh, of course, of course, he's just he's an amazing actor. He's he's kind of I would say in a little ways uh, t- our Tim Curry of uh, this generation. Yeah, in a different way because Tim Curry he's definitely did a lot of creatures. Do not get me wrong there, but he did more creatures. But like his face, you know, like you still got to see some of Tim Curry. True, shining through. True. Whereas Doug Jones does like the full body prosthetics. Like you're not getting any of him. Minus a few things. Like in Hocus Pocus, he's a little bit more visible because it's not as obvious of crazy prosthetics. It's not like him being Pan from Pan's Labyrinth. Right. It's not It's not completely full prosthetics. Yeah. Um, and maybe that, maybe that has to do with the, with the time, you know, when Tim Curry was doing his acting. You know, if, if I had to pick between Doug Jones and Tim Curry, you know it would be Tim Curry. Sorry. I mean, yeah, I know. You have... The biggest crush on Tim Curry, and that's totally understandable. He's tattooed on my arm. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I cried when I met the man. <laughs> Anyways, back to, the, to the, the subject at hand. I could talk about Tim Curry all day. But, you know, the, definitely um, I want to go back to the house being its own character. Because, it, I mean, this house, it moves, it breathes, it falling apart. Oh, yeah, it bleeds and... There's always, there's an energy to it. And that's what I find really interesting about it too, is the fact that the story is technically about like Thomas and Lucille Sharp and Edith, but it's also mainly about the house. The house is kind of the central kind of character throughout because it's almost trying to give up its dead and give up its secrets to Edith. And the story is really just watching Edith kind of realize everything that has happened in this place and trying to almost avenge all of the pain and sorrow and agony that has happened in this house and to me she almost like the way that her character is like almost all white because i noticed that her hair does do changes in blonde and i think that's intentional and when she gets into that into the house and she gets more and more sick her her skin becomes whiter her dress is white her hair becomes whiter and it's almost it's almost like she's like this little tiny light in the dark as she's walking through the house. Oh, for sure. And again, I think that's definitely that symbolism of her being this, you know, point of light in such a dark, horrible place. But it's also kind of showing, too, the fact that she herself 
will become a ghost soon. Like she's being pushed into becoming a ghost of the house itself, even though she's alive. Right. Because they're, they're poisoning her. Oh yeah. And especially with those big puffy, like sleeve nightgowns and her long hair, she almost looks like the silhouette of like a, you know, a sheet ghost in some of those scenes. She does. She, I mean, she looks more like your, your traditional ghost than the actual ghosts do. Oh yeah. And that's again, what I love about this movie is some of the like simple subversions like that. Like obviously again, the story is maybe not the most unique or revolutionary, but I think it's more about the small details and the little things that Del Toro kind of like twisted that make it not the most basic of stories, but kind of elevates it a little bit, updates it a little bit. Like for instance, Dr. McMichael is kind of the damsel in distress at the end, even though he showed up trying to be the hero. (laughs) He's the one that needs rescuing. Little twists like that I think are really nice. And maybe it wasn't something that like the general audience liked, but me as like a big like gothic horror fan, I found those things really interesting and enjoyable. Well, it it did get a weirdly low reception in, in my personal opinion. Oh, same. I... I remember I went to, I specifically went to the movie theater to see this when it first came out in 2015. Um, Just because, again, I love me a good ghost story. I love me a Del Toro film. It looked stunning and I knew the cast was really well, like, picked. So I, like, forced some friends and we all went. And you could definitely tell who was more into, like, cinema or, like, these kinds of stories. Those are the people I found both the people that I went with and like people talking about it online that really enjoyed it. And then general audience, like a general movie viewer, a lot of people just didn't really seem interested and got really bored halfway through. And I also wonder, because I would say uh, definitely like around 2015, there was a huge surplus of horror movies. I mean, I think we were getting more horror movies than we were romantic movies. Um, at the time. So I'm wondering if it just got lost in the shuffle. Maybe that. I think it too, it's just a different kind of horror movie that wasn't like in style at the time. Cause like 2015, you were kind of getting out of like the like ridiculous, just like over gore movies, you know, the, just like the hostels and like the saws, you were still getting them, but those were kind of moving out. And it was more like the psychological horror alien movies, like those kinds of horror movies. And this one, it was just so different than like the typical kind of horror movie that were coming out at the time. Like this one was a pretty true to theme gothic horror story. Yeah. So I think it, I think it got lost in the, the surplus and I think it got lost in because it wasn't what the audience was looking for at the time. Yeah. What general horror fans were looking for were something a little bit more intense, a lot more gory. Like, there's gore in this movie, but it's not near, it's not Saw. It's not hostile. It's some stabbing in, you know, into the eye, through the cheek kind of stuff. Fingers being cut off, like a man's face getting bashed into a porcelain um, sink. It's pretty, pretty gross. It was, I mean, they showed that in quite a lot of detail. I mean, there's a lot of blood, but it's not the same as, for instance, watching Jigsaw torture people for like two hours. I I have to say there is. I have no room for hostile at all in my, uh, I just, I can't get, I can't get a movie for the sake of torture. It's just, nah. I have theories on that, which we can definitely talk about another day about why those were so popular when they were. 
So maybe down the line, we'll talk about that. Gotcha. Be, those are, those are just go too far. They're almost like snuff films. Yeah. I think some of them are interesting, but again, we can talk about the overzealous use of blood in the early 2000s later. Yeah. Well, that, that can be a whole nother episode. 2000s were, they were, people are mean shit. <laughs> exactly. But back to our lovely, sad ghost love story with a lot of red clay and blood. Yes, red clay and blood. So Thomas is absolutely handsome. And I can see why Edith does fall for him. But he's he's a villain. He has killed five women up to this point. But at the end, do you feel he's sympathetic? I would say so. It doesn't make him not a villain. But he's a sympathetic villain. The difficult thing with Thomas, and that's what I really like about this movie too, is he's a very complicated villain. Because yes, he did lure these women to their deaths. Yes, he did a lot of, you know, the like flirting and like the proposing and the marriages and stuff and all of that. And that's horrible. But he didn't do any of the killing himself. Like, not at all. And with Edith, he did fall in love with her and he did want to protect her. And he did end up ultimately saving her, even from beyond the grave. So, like, I'd say he's a tragically sympathetic villain. Well, I, you know, I think he's kind of forced to be that way because of his sister. Well, for sure. I mean, Lucille is, I think, ultimately the the big bad of the movie. She's definitely the villain of the movie. But Thomas is like her little, her henchman, her little lackey. I definitely think that Lucille and Thomas, both of them had to die. Just, it, it. That's the best way, the most dramatic way to go out. But can you imagine if they, if Thomas did live that, that, that amount of therapy that they would have to go through to be able to, to make a marriage? That amount of Victorian therapy. (laughs) Non-existent. (laughs) Like, oh no. They definitely both were not allowed, they could not survive or outsurvive this house they definitely needed to die the sharp family and the sharp line and the sharp name need to die with that house and at the end that is kind of the general feeling is that the sharp family and all of their twisted fucked up agony were finally all laid to rest but yeah i mean the thing with thomas is i definitely think he's a villain for sure but he's also a victim he is lucille's victim Whether or not their relationship was consensual from the start, who knows? I think that's supposed to be kind of ambiguous. Mm -hmm. But she definitely was the manipulative one. She was the um, homicidal one. She's the one doing all of these killings. And she loves it, obviously. She is totally cool with it. And she's the one that's perpetuating this whole scheme of wifing up a bunch of rich women making sure they have no one, no family to look for them, no friends to look for them, and then killing them off for their money. Like, she's the one perpetuating this and doing whatever is necessary to ensure that they can continue with this plan. So I'd say she's for sure the worst, definitely deserved to die because of that. But Thomas kind of did too, because he went along with it. He had a part in the whole thing, even if it wasn't the blood on his hands. And like I said, the, the therapy they would need would just be, it would cost them a fortune. But to be honest, I feel like if Thomas survived, I feel like he would have very easily just been like, just wiped his hands and said, eh, it's fine. Go to a different country. It'll be fine. Yeah, but would Edith be okay with it? Yeah, that's what I mean. I think Edith would be the one that needs the therapy. Yes. 
<laughs> what, he did this and he did that? He had sex with his sister? His sister killed my dad? He stabbed my best friend slash the guy who was supposed to be saving me in front of me? He, You know, he's married all these women and, you know, he's a serial killer? I mean, he's an accomplice to a serial killer because, again, he didn't do any of the actual killing himself. That was all Lucille. True. He was just the he was the accessory to murder. I can just see that the the valid arguments that Edith would have in a therapy session. Yeah. <laughs> and rightfully so. So it's a good thing he did not live. Yeah, it's sad, but it needed to happen. All the sharps needed to die. They couldn't leave the home and like leave it for good. That house was not it was going to cling to them. And, and that mother, she's she's scary. She looks mean, too. Oh, yeah. And her portrait. She looks mean as hell. Maybe it was justified. I mean, they were just locked in the attic because their mom didn't want to deal with them. So, like, she's also not a good character. And that's the interesting thing with this whole movie is when it comes to the Sharps, like, nobody's a good character. All the Sharps suck. Edith is one of the few characters that isn't horrible and just, like, the worst. It's her and Dr. McMichael, and then everyone else just kind of sucks. Except maybe her dad. Yeah, her, her I like her dad. I And I like that her dad caught on that there's something wrong with them before he even knew. The doctor, though, he was just boring, boring to me. Like, you know, like, you'd usually have that other possible handsome guy you might want to pick. And I, I didn't get that from him. I really think his whole point was he was going to be the damsel in distress. So that's why there isn't a lot of, you know, character building for him. Other than establishing that him and Edith have a good back and forth. They have good chemistry. They are longtime friends, very close friends that are rekindling their friendship. So you do have that slight love triangle because like, let's be honest, like if, if Thomas Sharp didn't show up, she was going to be with Dr. McMichael. We all know this. Oh yeah. That's who she was going to marry. Like it's, it was obvious. I mean, and I want that for her still after the movie, like at the end, that's what I want for her. But I think it's more, he doesn't have such a developed character because his whole point was he was supposed to be that damsel in distress in the third act, at the very end of the movie, because he's the one that needed rescuing. He did the stupid thing of going all the way to England to try to get back this woman and save her from this horrible murderous siblings. And then he ends up getting stabbed in the armpit and stabbed in the gut, left to die. And it's up to Edith to defeat the Sharps and actually save the man that came to save her. But he was needed to be there. <laughs> he <laughs> Oh, for sure. He You had to have him there, show up at that exact time, or Edith was done. She was over. Well, if, if I was to go past beyond the movie, I would say, yes, they're together. And they have cute little kids. And um, they uh, uh, read uh, ghost stories to them. I hope. I hope they go back to America and don't have to ever think about Crimson Peak again. With all their money. Because they both have money. Yes. Dr. McMichael's a rich man. He's a doctor. And then, of course, Edith is now just rolling in the dough because her dad got murdered. A better ending. <laughs> that's, that's how I think it actually ended after the movie. I hope so. It's very rarely in a horror movie do you get like a potential for a happy ending yeah because you don't know what happens to them i'm hopeful i want that for them even though they're not real <laughs> that or you know they get back to america and um he gets sick with i don't know what did they have back then all kinds of diseases and he dies 
You know, if you want to take it the sad route, sure. Let's, let's go. Let's go the happy route. I I, I vote happy. Yeah, route. happily ever after. I want a fairy tale here. Although, kind of speaking to the point where Doctor McMichael kind of shows up at the house and is like, "Oh, hey, I'm here." Edith, when she falls from that banister, that's a gnarly shot, right? Yes, it's gnarly and beautiful. And the fact that that was a practical effect, they actually had her on like wires and do the fall. I love it. I think that just, it makes it feel so real that she actually like hit her head on a banister, like fell onto this hard ground. It would have looked so hokey and weird if they did that in a green screen. Yeah, I agree. And I love the way, and I say beautiful because the way that her dress flows in the air is is quite beautiful. Yeah, her dress and her hair and just the way that you get that beautiful like falling before she hits her head and like lands on the ground. It's almost kind of like the light is distinguishing. That she, you know, it's very much giving like ghosts too, like floating, but also kind of angelic in a way too. So it's almost like, oh, this white bit of light flying through the air, beautiful draping a fabric, but it's actually Edith presumably trying to be pushed to her death. I don't know how she survived it, but I was thrilled that she did because looked like she wasn't going to make it. Oh yeah. That again, the fact that it's a practical effect and that you actually are seeing Mia Vasakoska actually fall and seeing her actual body like falling through the air and making that impact on the ground. That's I think why at least for me and also my husband when we he watched it with me had like a visible like <gasps> when she fell because there's so much like it's real it happened like that's something that actually happened in real life granted there were safety precautions and wires and she landed on a mattress and padding but the fact that she did actually fall and do you know quote unquote hit her head it gives you that visceral reaction because you know that's real her acting i find that she's almost kind of the same in every role but she's she's so beautiful there's something almost dollish about about her and her acting um and, and she's just, she's so gorgeous, whatever she's in. I think she does feel very similar in a lot of the roles she does. And I haven't seen too, too many movies with her in it. But I think she does a really good job in these more like whimsical, fantastical movies. Because like the first movie I was ever introduced to her as an actress in was the Alice in Wonderland movies. Because I was like the peak target audience. I was like middle school, like early high school. Like I was who they were going for. And I remember seeing her in that movie and really liking her as Alice. And I also really like her as Edith because I feel like she does such a good job of like being that great, like viewer stand in, you know, where she's not putting so much in that she's, she's obviously the main character in both those movies, but she's done such a good job of almost being like that, like avatar for the viewer to kind of get into the movie. Yes. And visually her looks and in most movies and in just real life, if you told me she was an actual elf, I would believe you because she's so she's so mystical looking magical looking oh yeah she literally is like a a human sized doll like porcelain light skin the wavy blonde hair like especially in this movie and I think that may be part of it too is trying to make her look almost like ethereal in Crimson Peak as Edith did such a good job like amazing casting all around I think for this movie there isn't a single character that I would have wanted to recast I would not recast um, Tom Hiddleston. I think he's a fantastic actor. You love to hate him. You hate to love him because he's he's always that mischievous. He can be, you know, you go from mischievous to evil, but there's still that innocent quality about him. And I just, I think he's very handsome. I know he wasn't the first choice 
I believe it was Benedict Cumberbatch, actually. It was like the first choice that Del Toro had in mind when he was casting for this movie. And I think Tom Hiddleston was the better choice. And I'm glad that he ended up being the Thomas Sharp that we got to see in the film because it just works so well. Like he's so good at kind of having those different modes and being able to play someone that is very deceptive, especially, you know, since his biggest career move so far has been playing Loki. It makes sense that he would be playing a character that maybe has multiple sides to them and different facets to them in another feature film. He he makes you want to hate him, but date him at the same time. I mean, yeah, like he's such he's a proper English gentleman. Yes. Even though his sister is going to murder you the moment you get home and transfer the funds to him. I'd have to think long and hard of my decision because he is a little, he's very dreamy. Um, (laughs) Right? Like I said, he's. And we get to see his butt. So like. Oh, yes. That's. Best of both worlds here. (laughs) That's the top scene right there. (laughs) I I did not think it was going to go there, but it went there. Oh, yeah, I know that was a lot of the discourse I saw online about that because I was trying to see some different conversations about this movie and that a lot of people do not like that scene. And I'm just like, I feel like it's just giving very like romance novel energy. And it's not that bad comparative to like other shows and movies that are based off of like proper romance novels. It's not Outlander. I wasn't weirded out by his butt. I was okay with that. Again, it's I've seen worse in plenty of movies and plenty of shows. Like, I felt like that was a weird thing that a lot of people had a lot of hangups on. And I'm like, I mean, it kind of makes sense in the story, though. Like, it isn't just like a random, like, nudity or sex scene for no reason. Like, a lot of horror tends to have, like, slashers, for instance. Well, you have to have nudity in slashers. But I'm saying, like, I feel like it's part of the law. There has to be, in a slasher movie, at least one semi-random nudity scene. that doesn't fit. It's just forced in there just for the sake of it. Exactly. That's the perfect slasher movie. Bonus points if there's blood. Boobs (laughs) and blood. Boobs and blood. (laughs) It's the double Bs (laughs) of slasher films. (laughs) Whereas this one, it's obviously like this is gothic horror which is like a softer kind of horror you know like it's more about the atmosphere the energy and a lot of gothic horror really focuses around romance so it makes sense that there would be like at least one sex scene especially considering it's a married couple in like victorian times like pretty tame relatively and it fits with the general kind of like storyline of the movie and the general like theme of the movie and for the most part they were fully clothed it just you saw his you saw his bum Mm mm-hmm so I'm not complaining. Me neither. I I I, uh, I like Tom. People are weird. I th- would think I would think that they would find the sexual relationship between him and and his sister. I would think that would be more uncomfortable because that that made me uncomfortable. Yeah, like seeing them making out was super weird. I didn't enjoy that. Again, I when I saw it in theaters and when I rewatched it again, I audibly gasp every time they go, oh, I know this is coming. I knew this was coming the whole time. It's so heavily implied. But then you see it and you're like, oh, no. She also has her hand down his pants and that just. Yeah. So I just don't, I don't understand why that would not be the more, yeah. you know, uncomfortable scene. Again, people are weird. They pick the weirdest things to be upset about in movies. Now, do you think... Lucille is a sympathetic character. I guess I said it a little earlier, but no. She's the big bad evil guy of the whole movie. I think she's the worst. It's so good when you get to see Edith just like crack her neck under that uh shovel at the very end. There's she is the worst. There is no I have no sympathy for Lucille. I don't know about you. 
but I don't. Uh, the only thing I could think of it to have any sympathy for her is obviously she and her brother were abused. I don't think that necessarily creates a uh, psychopath. Um, and I do enjoy thoroughly her death. And I kind of wish Edith had took a couple more whacks. Same. <laughs> I definitely agree with you. I feel bad that they were abused. But like you said, that doesn't breed the homicidal sociopath that she was than she became. Just because you're in a shitty situation doesn't mean you go around just murdering random women for their money. Like, sure, I'll give you I'll give you a one-off for their mother. That's where I draw the line. That's where I have some issues. Because those are innocent women that did not need to get pulled into this nonsense. I wouldn't say I agree with you 100%. I totally agree with the mother's murder. I'm fine with that one. If, the, if it had stopped there. But she continued on because she got that bloodlust. I mean, she kept the cleaver she used to kill mom in the floorboards before they sent her off to that asylum for those few years. So obviously she very much enjoys murder. She kept it. It was under like a stone. And you would think that there would be some blood on it, but there wasn't. I mean, she killed her in the bath. Maybe just a little little dunk in the bath water. True. And then she hit it. Yeah. I think the end of it is we just... You know, Lucille's the worst and we hate her and we're glad she's dead. She's a crazy bitch, basically. A little sad that Thomas is dead, but not like super sad. Yep. Yeah, it had to happen. Yeah, I'm okay with it. Wish it didn't, but it had to happen. I personally think it's a really beautiful kind of like updated version of a gothic romantic ghost story, horror story. Maybe not everyone's cup of tea, but I'm glad that we both really like it. I mean, it makes sense. We're both very much prefer gothic horror in general, I think. So at least we found some joy out of it. I know plenty of other people did. Maybe it's not everyone's favorite movie, but it's one of mine. And if you haven't seen it and you hear this, give it a chance. Maybe you'll like it. I mean, we've ruined all of the twists and turns and surprises, but you should still watch it. It's very pretty. It's very pretty visually. It's worth it. Oh, for sure. I hope you enjoyed our ramblings on about, again, one of our favorite movies, Crimson Peak. Stay spooky. Um.